Thank you for downloading the following message from the Pickerington Church of Christ. We pray that this message will be a blessing to you as you walk with the Lord. For more information or to find additional resources, locate us on the web at pickeringtonchurch.org. Enjoy the message. We are so glad that you are here. If you're a visitor with us, welcome. You, we care about you and we're so glad that you're here. I want to tell you about somebody who really did care. Um, some of you may know the story about this man, some of you may not. It was in September of 1942. This man by the name of Viktor Frankl was living in Vienna. He was a prominent, young, brilliant, wise, up-and-coming psychiatrist and neurologist. And he was actually um, running a hospital at this time. He was a young man, just got married, his wife was pregnant, and come knocking on his door were the Nazi soldiers who took he, his pregnant wife, and his two parents away to their concentration camp and transported them. It was three years later that they were liberated, but most of Viktor Frankl's family, siblings and all, had passed away, including his pregnant wife and his parents. And he walked out three years later with a career that was destroyed. The only manuscript to the book that he wrote that was going to be internationally published was destroyed and lost. And he had lost everything. Frankel, prisoner number 119104, would go on to write that very next year his international bestseller called Man's Search for Meaning. And if you read this book, it's a book that is so dense and so rich. In fact, side note, I encourage everyone in here, you should read this book just like you should read Elie Wiesel's book, Night, uh, along with Diaries Van Frank. We should read these kind of books. Um, to understand history, to understand people's suffering. But he wrote this book, Man's Search for Meaning, as a reflection on his time in the concentration camps where he was just a laborer, he was doing menial work, but he was operating as a makeshift therapist to all the people who were there in the concentration camp with him. And he was a researcher and a scientist, so he was studying. And he wrote this book, Man's Search for Meaning, in nine days following his experience in the concentration camp. And what he noticed in the conclusion of the book, the conclusion of his life, he spent the rest of his life serving in this capacity, he concluded this one thing, that the difference between surviving and not surviving in the concentration camps was the people who had a mission, a purpose. People who had, as he titled his book, meaning. What he noticed, he, as he was observed people, those who were in the concentration camps that would say things like, I know we're going to get out of here by Thanksgiving. I know it. And Thanksgiving would come and they would still be enslaved. And then they would say, well, I know we're going to make it out by Christmas. I just know it. And then Christmas would come and they'd still be there. Maybe I know that I'm going to make it by my birthday and they'd make it to the birthday and they'd still be there. Those are the ones that eventually gave up and died. But he said those people that looked at their time there and said, I have people a family member, a spouse, a parent outside of this place waiting for me. Or I have a book to write that's in me that needs to come out. Or I have work that's left to be done. People that knew they had purpose and meaning in life survived even the worst kind of suffering. A side note, Viktor Frankl would go on after leaving and being liberated from the uh, concentration camp to run a mental hospital in Italy for 25 years and listen to this. Not one person under his care committed suicide in 25 years. 
because he practiced what he learned in the concentration camps, what they call logotherapy, which is giving people meaning, giving people purpose, giving people mission. And so he would come to the most broken down, hurt, and people in deep despair and say, listen, here's a bird on this floor that lives on this hospital floor, and this bird needs you. You've got to take care of it. You've got to feed it and change its crate. And just that little bit of meaning would give purpose to people's lives, and they would stay alive and they would live because they knew they had mission. He said it this way, Viktor Frankl in his book, uh, Man's Search for Meaning. A man who becomes conscious, man or woman, who becomes conscious of the responsibility he or she bears towards another human and to the work their life has left unfinished will never be able to throw their life away. Do you get that? He's saying, here's the conclusion. That when you become aware that there are people that you are responsible to and that there is work in your life left to be done, you will not throw your life away. And see, this reality transcends belief systems. It transcends thoughts and cultures. In fact, regardless of your beliefs, everybody believes and agrees with this idea that we need mission in our life. In fact, this has become incredibly popular since Stephen Covey wrote his book in 1989, Seven Habits for Highly Effective People. You all read that book? If you've been in business for the last few years, you probably have. And uh, point number two, really, he teaches people how to write a personal mission statement. And this has become pretty popular for people because what scientists and researchers are figuring out is that there's actual physical, mental, emotional health benefits of having a mission and a purpose in life. There are. In fact, you are less likely to have a heart attack. Go write a mission statement. You'll live longer. People without a sense of mission and purpose in their life are 2.4 times more likely to develop Alzheimer's. So this becomes an important question for us, right? How do we find what our mission is? You and I are designed and wired by our Creator to have purpose, to have meaning, to have mission to our life, to be about doing something. How do you discover that? There has been so much writing and so much um, contemporary modern wisdom that has been brought to bear on this subject. It's overwhelming. In fact, books galore exist around this subject. Let me give you a couple ways in which um, the wisdom of our contemporary culture is telling you how to discover what your mission is. One said this. What you have to do is start by listing your passions. What are you passionate about? And then co collect and list all your talents. What are you good at? And then decide what you want to accomplish in this world. And if you take your passions, your talents, and what you want to accomplish, you'll, you'll be able to formulate some sort of a mission. You can live that. Or there's another one that says this. You should look back on your life and identify where you've been successful. What have you been good at? What are the things that you value and care about? Where are the places that you contribute the most? And what are your goals? And when you know all these things, like your success, your values, your contributions, and your goals, when you know those things, what will come to the surface is your special, unique mission. Well, we're going to go a little bit different route in our series. Welcome to our new series, November and December. You are made for a mission. But we're going to go a different route than contemporary wisdom. Because our goal for the next eight weeks and nine weeks, pardon me, 
is not for you to be able to go through this sort of conference and learn how to write your own personal mission statement that you can have gilded and then put up in your office and read every day and, and look at. That's not really what we're trying to do. What I want us to do is learn the mission that every created being was given by God. There's one. Now, it's going to take on different forms. We're going to spend the next four weeks in November talking about the DNA of mission, the mission from God. And you're going to learn that it takes different forms and it looks differently at times. But there is a mission the creator of the universe has given to his creation, to his people. And we need to learn that. So what we're going to do to discover this is turn our attention to the one person who lived his life purposefully and excellently with mission, Jesus Christ. I want to look at him and see the DNA of mission, as I've mentioned, and then we're going to see in the month of December how he lived his mission, how you and I can do it the very same way. Our text in John chapter 6 brings us to the first aspect of mission. Someone wink at me when this goes blank, okay? Our text brings us to the first aspect of mission, and that's this. Mission must be received. Now, here's where we, where we differ from contemporary wisdom. Because if you listen to the language of all the contemporary wisdom about how to find your mission, it begins with you, it's generated by you, and it's sustained by you. It comes from you. What are your gifts, your talents, your passions, your goals, your achievements? What do you want to do? It comes from you. But the first thing we learn from Jesus about mission is that it's not self-generated. It's received. It's given to you. Remember, Jesus said that very early in his life in Luke chapter 2, I must be about my father's business. In John chapter 6, he said, I didn't come to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. Do you see, Jesus had this very real sense and reality of the fact that he was given from his father a mission to accomplish. It wasn't something in his free time and in his exploration he decided to create some random mission to do. It wasn't that. He was sent by the Father, from the Father's will, to do something. Now, there are two reasons we're going to talk about this morning, not three, two, about why it matters that your mission is received. Let's start with the first one. A received mission is unshakable. It cannot be shaken. When you are given a mission from somebody outside of you that you revere and honor and adore and love and respect. When you stand in awe of a being greater than you and that being gives you a mission, all of a sudden that mission becomes unshakable. There's this great point in Jesus' life in Luke chapter 9. It's really the turning point in all of Jesus' life. Luke chapter 9, Jesus' ministry is going great. He's fed the 5,000. He is popular amongst the people. He's really rising in popularity. And that's really when the envy of the religious leaders starts to really take note. Because he is incredibly popular. And then he brings his close 12 to him and he tells them, I'm going to die. But there's going to be a coming kingdom. And they don't like this. And at this point, Jesus' life turns. He is at his height of popularity but he's bringing awareness that his life was not here just to be popular, but to die. And so in Luke chapter 9, and verse 51, he comes into a town, and this town doesn't want to receive him. They don't want to accept him. 
And James and John, the sons of thunder, say, should we cast fire from heaven on these people, destroy these people because they won't receive you, Jesus? But in chapter 9, verse 51, it says this, why they wouldn't receive him. Because Jesus had set his face for Jerusalem. Now, at this point, he's up in Galilee. He's not in Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem is where the religious leaders are. And when he gets there, he knows they're going to be angry and they're going to kill him. And while his disciples and people kept coming around him, trying to stop him, saying, don't do this, don't do this, Jesus, the Bible says, set his face. Now, that phrase, set his face, is really where you get the word for buttress, meaning this support that's put in so that something will not move, cannot be shaken. You could not deter Jesus from marching to Jerusalem, even though it meant his death was imminent. You couldn't stop him. His mission was unshakable. Now, Jesus had a lot of reasons um, to give up, but his mission was unshakable because it was given to him. But he had a lot of reasons to quit. He had people doubting him, even close people. Remember John the Baptist in prison sent some disciples to Jesus and said, are you really the one or should we look for another one? People were doubting if he's really the one. He endured frustration, frustrating points in his life. He came off the Mount of Transfiguration, and there his disciples couldn't cast out a demon and heal somebody, and he was screaming to heaven, how long will I dwell with these people? Oh, faithless generation. He was frustrated. And then he had to deal with his disciples fighting over power. How frustrating do you think it was for Jesus, who was telling his disciples over and over, I'm the king and I'm going to die, and yet they're fighting over who's going to be in charge. So his mission had frustration in it. His mission had criticism. Matthew chapter 9, the Pharisees come to Jesus. They see him eating with Matthew and his friends. And they look at him and think, if you really were righteous, you wouldn't eat with sinners and tax collectors. They misunderstood him. And then they criticized him for his mission. Jesus endured suffering. He suffered because of this mission. He endured isolation. He was all alone at times. Now, if there's anybody who had reason to quit their mission, it was Jesus. Doubts, frustration, criticism, suffering, isolation, all these things piling onto him. And yet he was unshakable in what he came to earth to do because his mission was given to him by somebody outside of him. You see, when you're the source of your own mission, when it's your skills, your passion, your goals, your desires... It is always subject to change because we're always changing. We're growing, we're losing, we're gaining. We're always changing. When we're doubted or when we become frustrated with people, when people don't jump on board with us and what we're trying to accomplish, when people misunderstand our mission and maybe criticize what we're doing, when we suffer for what we believe in, if we haven't received our mission, we're going to give up or we're going to change. We're going to be tempted to quit because the only person... You have to convince to keep your mission as you if you're the one that made your mission, right? It's just like when you make a resolution and you don't tell anybody and you have it to yourself. How easy is it for you to give up on that resolution? The only person you got to console is you. And so if you generate just your own mission about life, it's so easy to change because you're the only person you have to convince. But if the sovereign king of the universe comes to you and says, I've made you for a purpose and you adore honor, and glorify Him. You'll receive that mission. You'll be unshakable. See, created beings receive their mission from their Creator. And when we receive our mission, we have certainty, confidence, 
and courage to live it, regardless of what challenges will come our way. When you receive your mission from God, it will be unshakable. But that's not the only reason we have to receive our mission. The second reason is this. A received mission is not just unshakable, it's unselfish. It's unselfish. I'll take you to the story in John chapter 13. Jesus, last night on earth, he is preparing himself to be betrayed, to be tortured, to be mocked and ridiculed, and then eventually to die. He's preparing himself for that. And he asks his disciples to prepare the upper room so that they could partake of the Passover and spend time together one last night. And as they come into the room, this is a private setting, it's intimate, there are no servants there, and all the disciples sit down and they're wondering, who's going to wash feet? Because that was what you did. Somebody had to wash feet. They were dirty. They had probably walked in dirt, maybe some mud. They wore some sandals. They took them off to sit down at the table. And somebody was going to have to come around and start washing feet. And they're all looking at each other saying, who's going to give in? Because the moment I do it first, then i got to do it the rest of the life, right? All those of you who have been married, <laughs> you know how that goes. And so they're waiting. And in John chapter 13, listen to this passage, verse 1. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own, he loved them to the end who were in the world. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus knowing, now look at this, look what Jesus knew. It's just the twelve and Jesus. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand and that he had come from God and he was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured the water and began to wash feet. What gave Jesus the freedom, the liberty, the mental capacity to say, in this moment, when this hour is all about me and this deal is bearing down on my life, what gave him the power and the freedom to say, I'll wash feet, no problem, I'll serve? It's because he had a mission that was given to him. And here's what that, why this matters. When a mission is given to you, that means that mission is bigger than you. Bigger than you. We're stifled and frustrated in our lives because we're self-generating missions that are really just about us. And they eventually leave us dissatisfied. You see, a major problem with the modern method of generating mission is that it comes from us, and it's ultimately about us. You see, the center of most modern thinking today is the self. It's self. It's all about self. In fact, right now, today, there are 319 words in the English language that start with the word self and have a, an attached word to it. 319. Our most popular picture to take is what? Starts with self, doesn't it? Our culture says the way that you discover your mission is to find it within yourself. They ask questions like, what do you want to do? What are your dreams? What are your aspirations? Do you see how that starts within you? And when it starts there, it can never be bigger than you. Freudian psychology gave rise to this in the late 1800s to the current belief that within yourself, you can find all of your answers. You want happiness? Look to yourself. Forget other people. You want mission? Ask yourself. What do you want to do? You want purpose? Define it for yourself. 
And I think it's time we be honest about this because researchers and scientists are agreeing with this as well. This experiment of the self has utterly failed. It has utterly failed. Don't believe me? Anxiety is at epidemic levels in our culture today. 62% of students in college right now report overwhelming, crippling anxiety. Sounds like a lot, right? Sounds even worse when you know that it was 18% in 1985. 62%. Did you know that admissions to children's hospitals across the United States in their psychiatric ward for suicidal thoughts and suicidal actions have doubled since 2009. Doubled. Why? Maybe because we've put all the pressure on self and there's nothing outside of us that we believe can help us. Meg Jay, the renowned psychologist in Virginia who treats only 20-somethings, that's from 20 to 29, that 20-something age, has a carousel, revolving door of kids coming to her office, I should say adults, 20-somethings, coming to her office repeatedly. And here's what they say. Constantly, they feel lost. They feel like they're drowning in an ocean of choice, and they don't know where the island of purpose is to swim towards. That's what they're saying. Because here's what we've told everybody. You can be whatever you want to be. Tell us what you want to do. And we've transferred all of the responsibility of meaning, purpose, mission, value of life to the self. And the self can't answer it. It can't handle it. You were designed to receive from outside of you, starting with parents, then elders in your culture or your community, the church, and ultimately God to tell you who you are, who you can be, and why you're here. And when that happens, it relieves the young mind of all the burden and pressure of failing. That's what we've put on our kids. You see, the most counterintuitive aspect of Christianity is this reality that you actually have to die to yourself to find life. That doesn't sound too contemporary, does it? Die to yourself to find life. You see, we need something bigger than us, outside of us, to speak into us about what life is really about. We need to receive a mission because here's the reality. You ready for this? From God, your mission predates your arrival on this earth. You know, God had your mission for this life in his mind and in his will before you were ever conceived on this earth. That's how big your mission is. That's how, what you're linking up to, something that transcends today, your life, eternity. It's into that. So what is it, right? Okay, I've left you hanging for 20-some minutes. What is our mission? <laughs> Should I tell you today? Wait, no, I'll tell you today. Okay. I've gone all this time and I haven't told you. I want you to look at John 17. Jesus is going to tell you. John 17. He's going to pray in a few verses here. <clears throat> and he's going to reveal to you the singular mission of every human. Now, for the next three weeks, I'm, I'm prepping you. For the next three weeks, we're going to get clarity on how that looks in your life. Because it's going to look different for all of us. But you've got to get this foundational mission of every human being. And I want you to meditate, pray, think about, read, and dwell on this for this week. This is the mission of humans. Starting in verse 1, when Jesus had spoken these words, finishing his time with the disciples, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son 
may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to those whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world ever existed. Tucked neatly inside of Jesus' words is the mission of all humans. In verse 1, Jesus said, Father, glorify your Son, so that the Son may glorify you. What is the mission of every human being? Isaiah 43 said it this way. Everyone who I'm called by my name, God said, who I created for my glory. Now, I know it's still in the world of theory. We're going to have to make some sense of what that means. But I don't want you to just... Give up on this for a second. Hang in there. The mission of every human being on earth, every created thing, is to bring glory and honor to its creator. That's why the Psalms say things like um, the rocks and the hills give glory to God and the animals and the birds, they give glory to God because created things, when they do what they were created to do, give glory to God. And the same is true for humans, for us. We were designed by God to bring him Glory. Now, what does that mean? Glory means to declare reality. And here's what we're called to do. To declare the reality that God alone is worthy of our praise. That God alone is above all things valuable and precious. That God alone deserves my adoration, my submission, and my obedience. That God is actually God and nothing else. It's born out of the belief that we see David write about in Psalm 16. When he said, in the presence of God is fullness of joy. And at the right hand of God are pleasures forevermore. And if you really believe that, in God's presence there's um, joy forever. And at his right hand there's pleasures forevermore. You'll believe that he is the most glorious being. And will begin to live a life in honor of him. Out of gratitude for what he's done for us. In submission to him. Because being with him is where all joy is found. And you'll do that at all costs. And a life that lives that way, that brings glory to God, that says, God deserves my honor, my praise, my submission, my obedience. God deserves that because he is worthy of all glory, automatically demonstrates to the rest of the world who might not be doing that, that they should do it as well. This is your transcendent mission in life. Pause and hear that. This is your mission in life, to bring glory and honor to God in the way that you work, in the way that you relate, in the way that you live, in the way that you think, the way that you act, in all aspects, in all places, in all ways of life to bring glory to God. The one overall question we can constantly ask ourselves is, with this thing, am I bringing glory to God? As I exist in this relationship, am I bringing glory to God? And you might be asking, well, how are we going to do that? Well, look down in verse 4. You're going to get a little bit of a hint, and this will springboard us into next week. Jesus tells you, he says, I have glorified you on earth, Father, having accomplished the work you gave me to do. Starting next week, we're going to get great clarity on the work that he's given every believer in Jesus Christ to do. And when we do that work, we bring glory and honor to his name. You see, for Jesus, 
His father's glory being declared to all the world was all he cared about. In John chapter 12, as he was coming to the upper room, we see Jesus sort of reveal a little bit about himself when he says, my soul is troubled because the hour has come. But then he rhetorically asks himself in John 12, verse 27, he says, Father, should I say, save me from this hour? He says, no, it's for this purpose I came to this hour. Glorify your name, God, and what I'm about to do. You see, bringing his father glory means that he brought me unbelievable blessing. When Jesus had his mind on bringing glory to God, it led him to obedience to the will of the Father. And in doing so, he brought me and you immeasurable amounts of blessing. That's exactly how God's mission works. You see, the reason people want to have missions, they want to have impact and meaning in life. Here's how God's mission works. When you bring him glory, people are blessed. And when Jesus Christ brought God glory by going to the cross and declaring his excellency, even greater than life itself, he declared, God is great, and we can be blessed. And if you're missing the connection to Jesus Christ, the one who teaches you about mission, the one who gives purpose and meaning to your life, the one that motivates you to live on mission, boy, you're missing the source of everlasting life. Not just life after you die, but life that has real significance and meaning as you live here today. If you're missing that, you can come as we stand and sing.